today we'll be, we'll be looking at Isaiah 52:13 to 53:12. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by, wounds, by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And he the will, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will hear the, bear the iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Thanks, Moji. So it's good to be with you. Uh, you'll find an outline of where we're going um, and the text of the passage from Scripture that we're looking at today. So please have that in front of you if that's helpful. Well, we live in the age of TV and internet and all that sort of communication, which means that all of us are exposed to violence and suffering at a pretty visceral sort of level. You almost can't avoid it. You see it on the screen. It's given to you in slow motion and close-ups. Sometimes it is just special effects, isn't it? And you can always brush it off and say, oh, that's not real. Or maybe it's just acting. And... But sometimes it's more than that. But even when it's just manipulated pixels, it's hard not to, to sort of flinch at you, as you see some of that uh, suffering, some of the violence, people blown to pieces uh, by explosions or a spray of bullets or a kick to the guts, whatever it might be. But when we know it's real, it's even more appalling, isn't it? That, that sort of violence, that sort of suffering is happening. If the movie maker can convince me it's real, the brutal fighting, the callous shooting, 
I actually can't watch. I, I, I find myself turning away. But even more so when it's real. Sometimes on the news they'll show a bit of CCTV uh, that's captured a moment of impact, whether it's a bullet or a car or a king hit. And I, actually, I sort of feel it in the guts as if I've been king hit. I feel numb. I presume you share some of that experience with me. There is violence in our world. There's torture, there's bashings, there's shootings, there's rape. And it's painful. And once you've seen it, it's hard to get it out of your mind, out of your imagination. What do you make of it? If you can get past the the feeling of of being appalled and the flinching, how do you think about it? How do you cope with it? I guess for many of us, it's sort of out there. It isn't our life yet. And we just think, well, maybe stuff happens. That's just the way it is. Hopefully, it never happens in my life. For many among us, it's a reason not to believe in a God. If there is a God, how could a God stand by and just watch that happen? And not stop it. I would have. Others defend God. That's not his fault. It's what we do to each other. It's our fault. Well, the passage we're looking at today is probably one of the most moving, one of the most beautiful in the whole Bible, but also one of the most appalling. (laughs) It's inspired great musicals like Handel's Messiah. Not Disneyland, I know, but a great musical. And it's built really around this passage in Isaiah 52 and 53. It quotes verses like 6, We all like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned away. Verse 5, He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. And many of us, as we read it, we know it's about Jesus. Can I ask you just to suspend that for the moment? Uh, We've just been through Mark 14 to 16. We've, We've watched Jesus arrested, tried, crucified, dead, buried. And this passage describes all that. And and I hope you can't help but see that. But I still want you to suspend judgment for the moment and just come into this passage on its own terms to start with. Because it's a passage that's full of violence, enough to make you flinch, enough to appall you. As we explore... I hope you will respond a little bit emotionally to it, maybe flinch a couple of times, but I want you to think and reflect on it as well because that's what Isaiah wants us to do. It's part of a section in the prophet Isaiah that was spoken to the exiles in Babylon. So think 550 BC, if that means anything to you, if you've got any sort of timeline in the back of your mind. Um, Isaiah was actually speaking more before that, but they're the people he's addressing. Jerusalem, their capital, has been decimated by the Babylonians. They've been carted off as slaves into captivity across in Babylon, a foreign country. They hate it. They've got no future. It seems like God has let them down completely. But into that situation, God, through his prophet, says, comfort. Comfort my people. We saw that a couple of weeks ago. Because I'm going to do something. I'm going to bring you back out of slavery, out of exile, in a grand uh, salvation, a grand exodus. But they're in exile because of their sin, their evil, their rebellion against the God who created them and and rescued them out of Egypt and made them his own. A God that that they'd contracted with to be his people and to be loyal to him. So what will happen to their sin? How will God move to do such things? Well, we saw last week he'll do it through even a foreign king, an evil, violent man called Cyrus. Cyrus. But we see today that there's something else to it. There's another aspect to the way God will do it. It's to do with his servant. Behold, my servant is how this passage starts. God introducing us to his servant. 
Although actually, he's introduced us to, to this servant a few chapters back. If you've got a Bible and you're open in Isaiah, come back to Isaiah 42. Because in this section of Isaiah, there are four little poems about this servant, this servant of the Lord. I see some rustling. Great. Isaiah 42. This is the first of those poems. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I'll put my spirit on him. He'll bring justice to the nations. He'll, he'll actually have an impact on all the nations of the world. But he won't uh, shout or cry aloud or raise his voice in the street. He, he won't be a big public prominent figure. A bruised reed he will not break. No, he won't even blow over a piece of cooked spaghetti. Uh, a, a smouldering wick he won't snuff out. He, he won't be a man of violence at all. He'll be a humble servant. In faithfulness, he'll bring forth justice. He won't falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. He's a servant. He's humble. He he has no power. He doesn't use violence. That's different to Cyrus. Cyrus conquers by violence. He's got the biggest army. He's got the biggest arm. But this servant will do something quite different. He'll behave very differently. He, He won't use violence at all. And God introduces his servant in this section, this fourth servant song. And we see that, well, we know he's not a man of violence, but quite quickly we find out he's a man on whom violence is flung. He wouldn't hurt a fly, but he is hurt deeply by others. Now, most revolutionaries use force and violence. Think French Revolution, think Russian Revolution, think any sort of revolution. It's always armed conflict. But violence begets violence. But in this servant, he doesn't inflict violence. It's inflicted on him and to him. So we see in verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He didn't fight back, not even with his words. He was led like a, a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before its shearers is silent, he didn't open his mouth. He's led away like a lamb to the slaughter. He's going to the slaughterhouse, to the abattoir. Remember, I spent my first few years living in East Africa. And just down the the road from where we lived was an abattoir. Fairly short thing, just a shed and a a sort of run where the cattle would get herded into it. And I remember asking my dad, what happens in that shed? And my dad said, I'm not going to tell you and you're not allowed to go there. Which is the wrong thing to say to a (laughs) six-year-old. So I found a way to sneak in and got a peek of what happened in the abattoir, and I wished I hadn't. This man was like a sheep going to the abattoir. The violence is on him. He's cut off, verse 8, from the land of the living. For the transgression of people, he's punished. He's, he, he does die, but it's not a gentle death. He doesn't just die silently in the night. It's violent. His life is extinguished. Verse 5, he's pierced. For our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Pierced is run through. Crushed has the sense of being ground, just ground into the ground, physically, emotionally, crushed. That's what happens to him. Now, if you're imagining what this is describing, I presume you're flinching. We're asked to be spectators. Like the movie is played out in front of us. And what are you thinking? What are you feeling? At this point, well, the prophet who's watching, Isaiah, comes to his first verdict. Uh, we see it in verse 4. 
He says, we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But that's his first assumption. That's how he understands and interprets what's going on. God is striking this guy down. He must have deserved it then. He must have done evil. Now God is punishing him for his sin. He must be under God's condemnation. And he's getting exactly what he deserves. And I think that's a common reaction when you see suffering in the world, isn't it? Whether they're gangland shootings or earthquakes and tsunamis. Well, if there is a God, he's punishing people. It's karma coming back to get them. Or maybe there's no God. Well, that's this guy's initial verdict. It's God, a violent man who's being punished by God violently through the violence of others. But then that verdict doesn't actually fit everything that the prophet knows about this servant. You see, in verse 9, he says that he had done no violence, nor was any deceit on his mouth. He was completely innocent. Not even any deceit. Can you imagine that? Now, my guess is if I talk to your parents, they'll be able to tell me when you first started telling lies, when deceit was first found on your mouth. And I bet they claim they never taught you to do it. You just worked it out yourself, didn't you? I did. I know my kids did. We're just like that, aren't we? And yet if this man had said not even any deceit was on his mouth, It never came out, ever. Now, I've never met anyone like that. I'd like to, because you could trust them completely, couldn't you? But this man, not only no violence, but not even any deceit. He can't be being punished by God. It can't be something he deserves. And so the prophet has to revise his verdict. And he does it in verse 4 and 5. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. We considered him punished by God, but... Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Of course, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us turned to our own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He wasn't suffering for his own evil, but our evil. The prophet knows there's a strong connection between suffering and evil. Suffering isn't just random. When there's evil, it brings suffering. Where there's suffering, you know there's been evil. Because God is a good God. If he's suffering, and it's not because of his sin, it must be our sin that's been laid on him. See, what is being described here is what you could call vicarious suffering. I don't know whether that's a word you ever use, vicarious. It sort of has the idea of somebody else stepping in for you, a a transfer, a a substitution. So I I, I don't do this, but imagine you think you're going to fail one of your exams, but you've got an older brother who's, who's, who's an ace at that subject. You could sub them in, couldn't you? And therefore you could be there vicariously. They're there on your behalf. They're there representing you, being you in the exam. As I said, don't do it. That's called cheating. But there's other times where vicariousness is is actually right, this idea of being a a substitute. And he understands it is having two phases to it. The first is that our sin is laid on him. There's a transfer. What I've done wrong, what I've done as evil, is laid on him. It's transferred from me to this servant. But it goes further than that. It's more than the transfer. It's also the transfer of the punishment for sin. He takes the penalty that I deserve. It's the sin 
And it's the punishment, the penalty for sin. So it's vicarious, which means, and I use another technical term, it's retributive. Now, that may not make any sense to you, but you know what retribution is, don't you? Retribution is when somebody does something wrong and you get revenge. You, you do something in return. You give them what they deserve. Now, the idea of retributive justice is a little bit out of favour in our culture at the moment. Uh, we struggle as a culture, I think, to work out what to do with criminals. What do we do with people who've done evil? And there's sort of three main... We throw them in prison, I know that. But what are we trying to do by throwing them into prison? And there's sort of three main theories that the criminologists will come up with and, and we'll talk about. One is called deterrence. So you throw them in prison, you deter them from doing it again, or the prospect of being thrown in prison deters you from doing the crime in the first place. And if you get thrown into prison, other people who are thinking about doing the crime think, oh, you get thrown into prison, I don't want to do it. So that's deterrence. It's to try to stop people doing the crime. Um, And it has some validity to it. Others think of uh, the way, or the, the framework we should think of is not deterrence or retribution, but rehabilitation. We need to treat criminals, people who do evil, as if there's something wrong with them. They're, they're sick and they need treatment. They need to be rehabilitated so they become better, pers- better people, more fit to be part of society. And so that is the purpose of putting them in prison or whatever it might be. And so our, what used to be called our Justice Department is now called the Department of Corrective Services. Do you hear it? That's rehabilitation, isn't it? What we're doing is servicing people to correct them. The third alternative, which I said is out of fashion at the moment, is called retribution. That is, you look at what they've done and you say they deserve to be punished with a punishment commensurate with what they've done. They should get what they deserve. Now, I need to say up front, those three are not mutually exclusive. But what's the framework? What, what, what's the main one? What's the, the spine that holds together your, the way you treat criminals? Well, let me tell you what happens if it's deterrence. If it's deterrence, what you get is the convict ships that came to Australia, where somebody who stole a loaf of bread is sentenced not just to seven years hard labour in Australia, but transportation to the other side of the world where you will die, away from your family and friends. It was horrible. It was unjust. People were treated far worse than they deserved. If you think about uh, rehabilitation, well, there's a couple of problems with that. The first one is, who is right and who is wrong? Who's healthy and, and normal and who's sick? Because it could be the other way around, couldn't it? It's the sort of thing that led to what were called the Gulag Archipelagos that Solzhenitsyn writes so helpfully about in Russia. So if you do something wrong, even if we suspect you're just thinking the wrong way, we'll send you to the salt mines for years and years and years until you're re-educated, until you believe what we believe, until you affirm what we affirm, and then you're rehabilitated and we'll let you out. And so for, for doing nothing more than having a thought, you might get put away for 14, 20, the rest of your life. It was terrible. Retribution sounds harsh, but it actually treats people as real people. It says your decisions matter, and I'll respond to you by what you do, by the actual decisions and actions that you make, not by other things, not by my agenda, not by my normality even, but by what is right. 
It's actually more humane. Now, if you have retribution, you can have those other things. In fact, they're almost unavoidable. It does deter. It can rehabilitate. But God, in the scriptures, the true and living God, is a just God. It comes out of his love. His love distributed. His love for victims. And therefore, he acts with retribution. The penalty for evil must be paid. The penalty for treason is death. And this servant takes the penalty, takes the punishment for our evil. So it's vicarious, it's retributive, and thirdly, it's personal. Do you see how personal Isaiah actually gets? In verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. Not theirs, ours, yours and mine. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds, we are healed. Because we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us turned to our own way. That's why it's personal. I've lived for myself. And so if you come to the verdict that Jesus' death is vicarious, then you come to the the verdict, it's personal. It's my evil. It's our evil that was laid on him. As I chat to people and as I think about my own experience, there's a couple of different sort of paths to that conclusion. For some people... They start with Jesus. They see that he dies. He pays the penalty for people's sin and evil. And they think, well, man, if Jesus did that, maybe that includes me. Maybe I'm a sinner. Maybe I'm evil. I have iniquity. Some people come the other way around. They have a very strong sense and awareness of their own evil. They know they do it. They know they deceive. They know even violence is part of, of their makeup. And they look for a solution. They say, I wonder how I can ever be reconciled to God. And then they discover that God sent his own servant to take the punishment that they deserve. Either way, it becomes personal, though. The many that the servant takes uh, their punishment for includes me. It includes you. Have you seen that yet? That is actually about you. You're here in this story, in this reality, just like I am. So the prophet first thinks he must be being punished for his own sin. Then he realises, no, it's our sin. But God also has a say on this event. And you see it in verse 10. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. See, there's something after... This servant's death. He's cut off from life into darkness and death and emptiness. But he will see beyond that the light of life. And he'll even be satisfied with what his death achieves. Verse 12, I'll give him a portion, a share among the great. He'll be one of the greatest ever. He will have a share in them and I'll divide the spo- he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death. See, God's verdict... Not spelt out exactly how it will happen here, but somehow there will be more beyond his death. He will experience more. And we get a pretty good clue of that back in chapter 52, verse 13, the first verse there. See, my servant will act wisely. He'll be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. After his death, he'll be resurrected. He'll be alive again. He'll be exalted. Why? Well, verse 12, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgression. That is, because 
The servant did this voluntarily. It was a wonderful, brilliant thing he did. He poured out his life. But you might say, hasn't he said it's God's will to crush him? Isn't that what verse 10 says? Yes, God, it is God's will to crush him. But it was also voluntary on the part of the servant. That is, some people accuse Christian faith of cosmic child abuse. The father just thrashes the son. No, no, the son, the servant, willingly bears our sin, even as it is the will of the father. The Lord and his servant are in complete agreement, in complete unity. Both are responsible for what happens because both love us. What's the outcome of this violence, this suffering? In verse 11, many will be justified and the servant will be exalted. The suffering is appalling. It stuns us. But the outcome is even more stunning. Well, the question then is, who is this servant? I know you know the answer already, but come with me, because in the passage it's anonymous, isn't it? Unlike last week where Cyrus is named, it's it's Cyrus, here there's no name. I've assumed it's Jesus and it foretells Jesus many hundreds of years before. But many actually object to that and say, no, it can't be Jesus. So Jewish rabbis will say, no, this isn't Jesus, this is Israel. And so let's just do a little exercise of, of creating an identity kit of this servant as Isaiah gives it to us and see who fits, you know, like they do with a crime. They create an identity kit of the people who've witnessed it and then they look for the person so that we can recognise this servant. Well, there's a few things we know about him. Firstly, he's a nobody, born in obscurity, outwardly unimpressive. Well, of the 7 billion people in the world, that probably narrows it to 6 billion people, doesn't it? Doesn't help that much. Uh, secondly, he suffers, he's despised and rejected, he's acquainted, very familiar with grief. Well, from the six billion, probably down to three billion at that point, aren't you? We know that he was pierced and crushed, that is, he suffered a violent death. Well, that narrows it down a lot, but we're probably still at 500 million, maybe? We're told he was silent before his accusers, that is, he, he actually goes through a trial and his death although it's violent, is a judicial execution. Well, in the history of the world, that narrows it down a lot. Most people who died early in violence have been killed in wars. This isn't a war. This is maybe only a million people in the history of the world. We're told he was buried with the rich, which is a very unusual thing to do with a criminal. Bury them amongst the rich people? That's, it's not only unusual, very unusual. It points to an individual, an individual grave. Sixthly, he's done no violence whatsoever and no deceit was ever found on his mouth. Well, that narrows it down enormously, doesn't it? Because I've never met anybody like that. I assume you haven't either. The person next to you isn't like that, are they? (laughs) Your siblings, your parents, your friends. No one I know is like that. And seventhly, after dying, he sees the light of life. He's somehow alive again. That's unimaginable. I only know one candidate who vaguely could fit that, and it's certainly not me. Is it the nation of Israel? Is it even just a small part, the remnant of the Jews? No, because this servant suffers for the sins of Israel, so the nation won't suffer. And it's not just the sins of the nation, it's even the sins of the prophet Isaiah. He's one of the good guys, one of the remnant, one of the faithful. 
are transferred onto this servant. No, it must be an individual. But which individual? Who who fits this bill? Well, interestingly, in Acts chapter 6, somebody asked that question. I'm oh, sorry, Acts chapter 8. Uh, it, it's the incident where the Ethiopian eunuch is travelling on his chariot back from Jerusalem. Let me read some of it to you. Uh, Philip starts out, on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Kandate, which means Queen of the Ethiopians. So he's from Ethiopia, which is 300 kilometres down into the heart of Africa from uh, the Middle East. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. On his way home, he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. So he'd gone up to Jerusalem to worship. He he knows who the true and living God is, but he's a Gentile, he's a dark-skinned African, and he's a eunuch. He's been castrated. He can't get into the temple. He's totally locked out. He still goes, 3,000 kilometres. Now he's on his way home. He's reading the prophet Isaiah. Uh, Philip runs up, and here's the man reading Isaiah. He says, do you understand what you're reading? How can I? Asked the the, um, Ethiopian. And then someone explains it to me. He invited Philip up. And this is the passage he was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken up from the earth. This is less than a year after Jesus was crucified. What do you think Philip is going to tell him? Who is this servant? Well, if you've been with us through the last few weeks looking at uh, Mark chapter 14 and 15 and 16, it's, it's obvious, isn't it? It's staring you in the face. And so in verse 35, Philip began that very passage of scripture and told him the good news, the gospel of Jesus. Because Jesus fits this identikit perfectly. In fact, he fits it so perfectly that it's led to lots of scepticism. In the 18th, 19th century, when sceptical rationalism was all the rage across Europe, um, people started to say, hold on a minute. This just fits Jesus so perfectly, it must have been written after the event. And at that stage, the earliest Hebrew manuscripts they had of the Old Testament, of Isaiah, dated from about 1000 AD. There were other translations that dated from earlier. And so they could sort of fly this idea that it was a a Christian insertion, a fraudulent uh, tampering with the evidence of the book of Isaiah. But in 1947, a shepherd boy was mucking around, throwing stones around uh, near the the Dead Sea. And one of his stones went into a cave and it broke a piece of pottery. And he went in and he discovered this cave full of clay jars, many of which had scrolls in them. Uh, We call it Qumran. Scrolls are called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And within those scrolls, there are copies of the book of Isaiah in Hebrew that date to 100 BC and earlier. That is, 100 years before Jesus ever came. And Isaiah 53 is in them. Hundreds of years before Jesus came. This is what the prophet said. This is what he foretold. He told us of Jesus. It doesn't fit anybody else in all of history, but it fits him like a glove. And so in this poem, this servant song, we meet a God who uses suffering. It is tempting sometimes to think that suffering, as we see it around us, is evidence that God is impotent or maybe doesn't exist. But not, that's not true of the true and living God. We're told very clearly, explicitly here in verse 10, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Yes, he did die at the, violence of, uh, at the hands of violent and corrupt humans, but they were doing God's will. 
I can look back on the death of Jesus and see injustice and numbing violence and murder. I can flinch and be appalled. But if that's all I see, I haven't really seen what's going on. It's sort of like I've looked at a pool of water and I've just seen the surface. I haven't seen what's under the water, the rocks and the the fish. Because if you start to see under the surface, you'll see this is God's will. This is a creative plan put into effect, a determined love for us. Although the word love is not mentioned in the passage, it underlies everything, doesn't it? For wayward, wandering, obstinate sheep. The servant takes what we deserve. And if it takes violence and suffering to restore us to peace with God, he will do it. He will bear it. And so we see God's wisdom. That's what's in Isaiah 52, 13. See, my servant will act wisely. At the heart of Christianity, in fact, at the centre of history, is God's servant suffering for us, taking the suffering that we deserve. God the Son, dying in our place vicariously, then raised and exalted to be king. Now, who would conceive of such a God as that? If you go to the ancient world and the gods of the Greeks and the Romans and the the Egyptians and and, and of Persia, none of the gods are like that. The suffering of the world is because they're having fights with each other and can't get on and all sorts of crazy stuff. Go to Hinduism and and Buddhism. Suffering is always your fault. It's your karma. It follows you into your next life and the next life and the next life. And it's very, very hard to escape it. In Islam, God is aloof from suffering. He just inflicts suffering but never suffers it himself. In atheism, well, suffering is just, it just is. It's not wrong. uh, I mightn't like it. It might be inconvenient, but it's just a fact of life. I shouldn't feel appalled about it. But in God's wisdom... Our sins, whether we have many of them or not so many of them, were laid on his servant, on Jesus. It humbles us because we need to be humbled. And it values us. It gives us incredible value. We were worth the death of his son. Humility and value at the same time. That is wise. That is brilliant. And it's God's way of relating to us, to us sheep who've gone astray, who've turned our own way. Did you ever wonder whether God is really for you. Does God care about you? Does he really care about me? When stuff happens to you and and things don't go the way you want, do you start to think, oh, maybe God's against me or maybe he's just indifferent? And some of us sort of have this imaginative dance with God. You know, I'm dancing with God and as long as I dance properly, God will dance properly, he'll be happy with me. But if I tread on his toes, he's going to tread on my toes and we'll go into a different dance and I'm just always uptight as to how well I'm dancing. No, if he sent his own servant who bore my sins, God is for me. If he crushed Jesus for me, he's saying out loud, unambiguously, publicly, I love you, I'm for you. Or do you ever wonder whether God has really sort of <laughs> lost control of things? You know, maybe things have got confused for God, he's baffled at the turn of events, he's scrambling to get his, his plans back on track. You know, like mission control when a, a space uh, expedition goes wrong. Because the world often does look crazy, doesn't it? Random stuff happening to us and around us. Well, no, this is the craziest thing in history. The suffering of God's own servant. Yet that was the will of God. That was his wisdom. His brilliant wisdom. And if it's true of this crazy, this absolute mind-blowing crazy... It's also true of the less crazy. Maybe you see the suffering of Jesus. Maybe you feel suffering in your own life. 
Maybe you know about the suffering of Jesus well, or you've just heard about it today. You could react by saying, well, yeah, that sort of stuff happens. People suffer, sad, but what's that got to do with me? But I reckon that sort of reaction doesn't actually add up. It doesn't fit the clear evidence. Because Isaiah, as he prophesies, as he imagines it, as God gives him the understanding, he says he, was, he poured out his life and numbered with the transgressions. He bore the sin of many. He bore our sin. The Ethiopian, when he understood what Jesus had done, that it was about Jesus, he asked to be baptised. That is, <laughs> he recognised that even as an Ethiopian, his iniquity had been laid on this servant. He could be washed clean, forgiven. Have you realised that yet? That through this servant, he was crushed for your iniquity. He was pierced for our transgression. Have you owned and embarrassed that? Embrace that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your public, committed love. We thank you for your wisdom and your power to use suffering to bring salvation. Help us to know you and to know the salvation. Amen.